Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to You Know What, I'm your host, You Know Who, and we've got a persistent yet impatient but also collaborative and community-oriented guest on the show today. And even though he won't be able to hear it, no matter where you are right now, riding the escalator at the mall or hang gliding across the Grand Canyon, please give a warm welcome to Kiroles Riad. Kiro, it's great to have you. How's it going? My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's been great. We've got a great 30 to 40 minutes ahead of us. We're going to try and jam-pack as much as we can into the show. Before we get started, tell us a bit more about yourself. So my, my name is Carlos Riad, and I'm a former public scholar at Concordia University, where I received a doctorate degree uh, from the individualized program, where I, I'm trying to develop new materials for 3D printing, and, and I have been doing that since my undergraduate degree. Uh, I also lead the Waste Not, Want Not initiative on campus. And, you know, we're very proud of it because since the beginning of, of Waste Not, Want Not in 2016, the community at Concordia doubled their annual composting. And each Concordian reduced their annual overall waste by 16% every year. So that's two months worth of garbage uh, every year that simply disappeared per person. So wow. we're, we're super proud of it. That's awesome. So I'm noticing that both of us are very fast talkers. So I think we're both going to have to work on slowing things way down for the listeners today because we could just run right through the end of the next la 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 la. So, <laughs> yes. so th- th- this is awesome. You're into your postdoc right now. So congratulations. Yes. That's, that's very exciting. Thank you. You must really enjoy research or something. It, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I started in my undergrad. I remember because I, I was in co-op which is you kind of do one semester where you study and then, you know, a semester where you work in industry. And I had a really hard time finding my first internship at a company. So actually the first semester I wasn't able to. And then the second time I tried, I talked to one of my professors. I was like, well, I'm looking for an internship. Are you looking for somebody in the lab? And that was Professor Rolf Udrich at the, who took me into his, his lab. And I just got more and more interested in, in research. And after that, I've done a couple of internships in industry, but I've never left the lab. I, I worked with Rolf and I, he was my supervisor in my master's. And I work with other professors as well, particularly Professor Paula with Adams. And I'm doing my, a short postdoc with her right now. So, you know, I just never leave. <laughs> I'm sure the lab keeps welcoming you back as well. You, you seem to have kind of made your own path. You're doing this individualized mm-hmm. program which I actually remember hearing yeah. about when I was first looking into a master's at Concordia. Pretty sweet. Could you tell me a bit about the individualized program and how you got into that? So and the short answer is that it's a program for crazy people. Um, so, <laughs> nice. so essentially your research is for people who want to research things that are a topic that doesn't fit in any other existing PhD program or any other program, mm-hmm. master's or PhD. And so I research engineering, chemistry, and a little bit of physics. So it's interdisciplinary, so you mix different disciplines. It's not as crazy as what other people do. Some people study health and, and medicine and combine that, that with art and history and then all kind of crazy disciplines that you, you can't imagine working together. For example, you look at bioengineering. It mixes biology and engineering. Mm-hmm. It's a program for that. But if you want to do biology and history, there's no program for gotcha. that. So that's where the indie comes in. So it's 
for, you know, crazy people that want to do crazy stuff. Well, that really works well with your self-description of being <laughs> a collaborator among yes. many things. It's really, I feel like it really facilitates collaboration if you already have expertise in a bunch of different domains. And I probably mentioned it a hundred different times at this point. I love having guests on the show who are doing research at the intersection of multiple fields as I have multiple interests as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really um, positive parts to it because you know you get to learn every day you're learning something new and about something different and especially if you're not really an expert in the specific things that you're trying to learn so you're you're almost like a child you have this kind of excitement that you get as a child when you're visiting a new place that you've never visited before mm-hmm. you know it just you get to see this kind of rivalry between disciplines how chemists talk about engineers and how engineers talk about chemists and it's fun to watch i'm happy to have you on the show and to dive into all of your different uh, expertise and disciplines to the best of our ability today i do want to address something before we get into the nitty-gritty of your current research and kind of get a better picture of your academic career and, and progression so far you did actually just write a really important article on nanoparticles in the now ubiquitous mm-hmm. covid mrna vaccines Kind of ironic that the article has actually been going viral. Could you run through (laughs) some of the main points for myself as a refresher and also for the listeners? I'll, of course, link the full article in the show notes. Yeah, so the story of the article first, the way it came about, is that I was trying to convince my own mother to get vaccinated because she was hesitant about getting vaccines. Okay. And I asked her about why, and, and she read some words that they include nanoparticles, and she automatically assumed that this means that this, they're bad for you. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I was a bit surprised because I make nanoparticles for a living. This is what I do in the lab. This is my work. And I always thought that I, you know, if I'm going to be labeled as a super villain scientist, my, my own family will be in my corner. So if I eventually, thankfully, she got fully vaccinated now and Excellent. everybody. But I got really worried about, you know, people hearing a new term that's uncommon and just automatically assuming it's bad. I, I don't know if you remember... If you ever watch Parks and Recreation, um, I actually watched know. my first episode like three days ago. Okay, you should absolutely watch it. It's absolutely fantastic, and I I completely relate to Leslie Nob, except especially that a lot of the episodes I feel like I'm I'm being personally attacked with just this <laughs> okay. way. But I don't but quite the, know what you mean by that because I haven't dived into the series yet. But maybe <laughs> I'll discover over time. There's an episode where she's trying to convince her community that having fluoride in water is a good thing because it helps your teeth. Okay. And then there's a whole campaign by a dentist of all people saying we should not put fluoride in the, in the water. And he was telling people that this is really bad for you because it's a chemical. It's fluoride. It sounds strange. You should not trust it. Yada, yada. And so people felt really afraid about it. Of course, he was saying this because he wants more clients as dentists. Um, so, you know, not having fluoride will, will give you bad teeth and will make you go as a dentist. So it's sort of the same things that I think with nanoparticles is that it's a, it's a novel term in our, you know, everyday language. And so people hear it and then they assume it's, it's really bad for you. So I decided to write this article because I have a really hard time letting things go. Um, okay. And so this is the stubborn part of, uh, of your introduction. And so I reached out to uh, one of my colleagues who is in biochemistry, who is an, you know, who's an expert in, in this kind of work. And I said, well, I make nanoparticles. You work with nanoparticles and biomedical applications. Let's write an article explaining what nanoparticles are and how we have been using it for millennia, for 
thousands of years. Like in fourth century China, there have been they have been making nanoparticles and using it as ink. Well, um, <laughs> nanoparticles yeah. sounds so, very futuristic. <laughs> that's it. Like what are nanoparticles, it's, it's, by the way? Like, can we just get a quick and dirty definition of them? Uh, good question. A, a nanoparticle is an indication of the size. So okay. a nano is is just a designation that reflects the size of the particles that you have. A particle is essentially a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had an iPod Nano like 10 years ago. Was that nano-sized or was that more of a... No, I think this is marketing to tell you that it's a very small iPod. Okay. Uh, <laughs> nano particles but, are probably smaller than the iPod itself. That's it. Scientifically speaking, a, a nano... Okay, you know, there's a meter, there's a centimeter, there's a millimeter, mm -hmm. and then you, you go to a micrometer and then a nanometer. Uh, essentially, it's one millionth of a millimeter. Okay. So essentially, if you have your one piece of hair and you see look how thin it is, you have to divide that by about 70,000 times to get to a nano size. <laughs> there are nanoparticles made out of metal. So you can cut a piece of iron into parts, into things that are so small that you that will have a nano size and you call it a nanoparticle. You can probably do that with sanding. I mean, you probably, with sanding, you probably get things like in a micro size, but... Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm then you can sand suspect. the sanded stuff. You can just, you, yeah, it's sanding all the way down. Or I mean, you probably have some that are in nano size, but the majority might be in the micro size. But we have some in the nano size, so it can be made out of metal. It can be made out of fat, which is what's used in vaccines. So essentially, it's you know the oils that you use to cook. Sure, it's yeah. a droplet of fat. Yep. If you make a droplet out of that oil in a nano size, that's kind of the same nanoparticles that's used in a COVID vaccine. It's a droplet of fat. Mm -hmm. okay. um, it covers the mRNA material. Oh, it's like an envelope. Yeah. And we're sending the mRNA by mail through our bodies. That's it. So it's a vehicle. It's, it's, it's an envelope, exactly, to send that mRNA, which is a list of instruction for your body to know how to make the spike protein. It's like how the shell of the virus looks like so that your body practices on it. And then you develop an immune response so that when, if you ever get the real thing, it will know how to respond. Um, okay. So it has no viral material. It just, it shows it how to make the shell. We're just like basically injecting these tiny little fat particles. And it's like as if we're shooting free throws after practice so that when game time comes, we can just sink those threes, no problem. Right. That's it. And, and you know, I, I understand people being hesitant about putting things that you don't know in their body. And the reality is that you know, we have been putting nanoparticles in our body for a long time. So there, are, mm -hmm. uh, if you take Tylenol, pills are coated with nanoparticles that are made of titania or silica. Oh, interesting. The okay. home where you're living in right now, I see you have white walls. The paint that you're using with that has titanium nanoparticle because it's, it's very, very white. Okay. And so it's used in many, many different places. The car tires you have have carbon black nanoparticles and it's like $18 billion industry that we have had for a very long time now. You're saving um, me the the uh, requirement of a application question. I don't need to ask you where this stuff is. It's all around me. It's on my body. It's in my body. It's absolutely everywhere. So I guess yeah. that kind of covers all the questions about why do you do what you do? This stuff is extremely applicable. The most important part is that a nanoparticle in and of itself it doesn't automatically mean it's good or bad. There are nanoparticles that are very good, like I mentioned. COVID vaccines is one of them. Mm -hmm. There are nanoparticles that are bad for you. For example, if you smoke, what you're breathing are nano-sized suits. Because of that nano size, it's too small for your defenses to 
filter it out. So like the hair and the nose, for example, that's one of your defenses to make sure you don't breathe things that are bad for mm -hmm. you. But the soot nanoparticles are too small to to be captured by that. So it goes through. I like how we brought this back to hair. The hair in our nose, which we know is like a million <laughs> times bigger than the nanoparticles, still can't manage to block it. Which is crazy because that's like that's like taking a soccer player who's a million times bigger than the ball and then still can't block mm -hmm. the ball from going into the net. Crazy stuff. Yeah. So so those nanosuits accumulate in your lung because they're also too big to be cleared from the lung. And so when they accumulate in the lung, it stays there and, and then they damage the lung and then people get uh, lung cancer from it. So there are things that are bad mm -hmm. and then those things that are good. So it, it's not the terms that make something good or bad. You have to test everything. And, and COVID vaccines have been tested for a very, very long time. And people always have this impression that, you know, we started testing when we first heard about COVID like a year and a half ago. And COVID has existed for a very long time. We just have a different strain of it that become a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So there has been a lot of work on COVID and on the mRNA technology that's applicable as a vaccine for COVID, as also promising cancer treatment, other vaccines is here to stay and has been worked on for many, many years. So the big takeaway is size matters. There you go. That's there you go. Way. That was actually... That was actually the introduction state, uh, sentence in my article that was edited to what it is right now. I think that kind of filtered itself into my subconscious and then just came out. Excellent. So this is great. We've got some understanding now of nanoparticles and mm -hmm. how they interact with our biology, but also how they're in our walls, in our tires. It's pretty, pretty sweet. How do nanoparticles as a medium fit into the research that you've been doing now for the last 10 years? I want to maybe take a a step back, you gave us a quick sense of your undergrad experience with internships, but what, when was the inception of your long-held research project that's, that's still ongoing? Bring us back to the beginning. So getting to nanoparticles is going to be a bit of a long story, so I'll just start from the very beginning and then eventually get back to nanoparticles. We will. Let's give oh. the condensed story because I know we could be here for three hours telling your whole life story <laughs> and I know you'd love to tell the whole thing, but this is a short form podcast, short-ish at okay. least. So. We're going to have to take some liberties here. Sure. <laughs> so I leave okay. it to you to get the get the story rolling, and I'll be popping in intermittently to uh, clear things up for myself. Okay. So it, it started with uh, a seminar that I attended as an undergrad where a student called Gavin Keneally, who has been a superstar at the time, like I always see him in articles and stuff like that, and he gave a seminar on his work on 3D printing. And I got really inspired, and this is how I got very interested in, in 3D printing, and it's Coincidentally, I had a I was taking a course on manufacturing, and I had to write a paper, and I had to choose what manufacturing technology I want to write about. And I saw three D printing. I was like, well, let's do that. I don't know anything about it, so uh, let's try. So ten years ago, three D printing like that that was a pretty new technology, no? Yeah. Well, I mean, it existed for a long time, but I think the hype around it. <laughs> this is going to be is... one of the motifs. Everything's been around for a very long time, <laughs> and we're just barely getting to it. But yeah, so I, I got really interested in 3D printing and then I reached out to Professor uh, Paul Denhams and saying, well, I, I want to work on this. And based on my paper, my conclusion was that I want to work on materials because this is what I feel is what's needed for 3D printing. When you so, say materials, you're saying you want to work on the materials side of the 3D printing domain as opposed to like the technological side or like the, like yes. the actual machine itself. You want to look at like what goes into the machine, like what, what materials are we using in it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, so there are different kinds of three D printing processes. Almost all of them use plastic. There's metal three D printing as well. Okay. 
I want to be able to 3D print with materials that would replace the metal. Okay. So there's a 3D printers that you have at home or you have like a filament of plastic or you can have even chocolate um, <laughs> or essentially anything that you can melt, right? Yeah, chocolate melts. Sure. So it, it goes through a hot head and then, you know, you, you move around and you, you 3D print this way one layer at a time. I use a different process called stereolithography. And essentially, instead of starting with a plastic filament, you start with a liquid resin. That's essentially glue, right? So when you buy glue from, um, from Dollarama, it, that glue becomes solid because of the heat around it. The glue that's involved in the 3D printing process that I work on essentially becomes solid because of light. I, I want to try and picture this. You have a liquid mm-hmm. that you're starting with as your, as, as your starting material. You shine light on it that solidifies it yes is there something else that i would interact with in my daily life that reacts that way like i'm I'm kind of blanking here dental fillings um you know when the dentist essentially put glue in your teeth Mm -hmm. um and then they have a little wand that has a uv light at the end of it and then the that liquid filling would interact with the light and become solid so now your fillings is solid the essence of my work is that when you use this process, stereolithography, to 3D print, that resin is sensitive to the light in the 3D printing laser, which is how you apply the light in a 3D printer, but it's also sensitive to the UV light that exists in solar spectrum, in sunlight. So okay. you, when you 3D print a part using this process and leave it outside for a couple of weeks, the resin will still absorb sunlight and then it will the properties will change over time. Yeah, and so to me you, that makes yeah. complete sense. Like going back to the chocolate, if I melt chocolate and then solidify it, if I leave the chocolate yeah. out in the sun, it's gonna melt again. That that's it. It's exactly that. Um, and so my goal was to make a resin that's sensitive to the three D printing laser, but not sunlight. So wow. I want to go to a higher energy of light. Mm-hmm. So if I'm able to raise the energy level that's required to solidify that liquid glue, then I can have that in a 3D printing laser. Mm-hmm. But ho- hopefully if I leave that part outside in sunlight, this, the sunlight is not going to have enough energy to change the properties of my material. Right. Right. So just to, just to maybe kind of compartmentalize what we've said so far, mm-hmm. the method is called stereolithography. And what that involves is this starting liquid mm-hmm. and a light that solidifies it when they come into contact. Is that what stereolithography is? Yes. Uh, the only okay. thing I would add is that it's not a lamp that is the source of the light. It's a laser. Because laser in order light. to print, you need to have high resolution. So you need to pass and uh-huh. print, let's say, a line. Let's say you're, you're going to yeah. print a rectangle. So you're going to do lines, right? And you want only the lines where the laser is going to pass to become solid, not the entire bed. So if you have a lamp, then the entire bed is going to be exposed to light and then you have mm-hmm. a block. Yeah. So that's, that's a, I guess, a, a little detail there. But to go back... It's an important one, though. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But to go back to the... Act- Look, Mom, I made a giant blob. Oh, honey, you used the lamp. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Laser, laser, laser. That's it. Um, but to go back to the actual question about nanoparticles, the, the resin that's used, essentially, it's glue that's mixed in with a chemical that absorbs light, right? And that mm-hmm. chemical, the energy of the light that's needed is a function of the chemicals that you use. So I'm, I'm trying to replace those chemicals with nanoparticles because nanoparticles are much okay. easier to tune, to adjust, to change. 
um, mm-hmm. to make also because those chemicals that are normally used in that process is very difficult to make and they're also very toxic and very expensive. And also I can adjust what kind of energy that this nanoparticle is going to respond to to start my reaction uh, to, to solidify. Excellent. So we're going to keep the glue as the base and it's just this, this additive yeah. that you're working on. Yes. Which is going to be... A nanoparticle. So are you implying that the current additives in here that are light sensitive, those are not nanoparticles? No, no, they're uh, not. So they're, they're a different kind of materials that, that you have to make in the lab. And yep. as I said, they're expensive, they're toxic, and they're very hard to adjust. So all of them have some sensitivity to sunlight, which is where the problem comes from. So I want to completely switch that to a whole new class of chemicals that are made of nanoparticles because they're very easy to make, they can be made very cheaply, and they're, a lot of them are actually safe. Okay, so give us the trade secret. How do you make nanoparticles? So the way I make them is by setting flammable chemicals on fire. Oh, <laughs> um, lovely. So yes. not to be done at home, listeners. <laughs> no, it's, I, I, I am an engineer. I like simple things. I'm not that smart. <laughs> so I, I've actually, I actually tried once to make nanoparticles out of um, using wet chemistry techniques. It's like, you know, you ha- you're in a lab and you're mixing liquids and, and so on. And mm-hmm. it's like, it takes days and there's many different steps and all these things. And I just went crazy. I was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> I actually um, really want to point this out. This is really important. All of the chemistry we do in like high school and in Quebec, Seja, mm-hmm. it's pretty much always liquid chemistry. Mm-hmm. We're, we're always just mixing various things. Yeah, we'll, we'll pour some powder into a liquid and then mix it around. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really curious about this other technique that involves fire. That sounds like a lot more fun. It, it is. And it's actually quite satisfying, especially if you're upset. But, <laughs> but it embodies the anger within. Oh, that's it. So essentially the way it works, I'm sorry to say, uh, you start with a liquid. So you have a chemical that contains the metal elements that you want. So essentially with this, it's, the process is called flame spray paralysis. And you can make any metal oxide of it. So let's say titanium becomes titanium dioxide. Okay. And so you start with the chemicals that includes the metal elements that you want. So if you want to make titanium dioxide, you start with the chemicals that includes the titanium elements. What, just out of curiosity, what chemical or compound or compound is the metal interacting with such that it gets those oxygen atoms to attach to it? it well, when you burn stuff, so let's say you burn fuel, yeah. Fuel essentially are carbons and hydrogen bonds. Uh, are carbon mm-hmm. and essentially a chemical with carbon and hydrogen. When yep. you burn it, all those bonds break. They interact with the oxygen in the air, and you get carbon dioxide and water vapor. And that's what happens when you burn fuel. Mm-hmm. So that's how, and and that's how carbon becomes CO two, uh, carbon dioxide, and right. hydrogen becomes H two O. It's the same exact process. You put everything on fire. You burn it. Everything uh-huh. gets oxidized. So titanium becomes titanium dioxide, hydrogen becomes H2O, water vapor, and, and carbon becomes CO2. And, and that's exactly what the composition of those chemicals are. It has a metal elements. Just to be precise here, though, is the titanium, let's say, playing the role of the carbon or the role of the hydrogen? Both. Or can we not well, even... It doesn't matter. Both, both of them both. are getting okay. oxidized. So Got both it. of okay. carbon... Okay, interesting. Oh, this is so crazy. I've, I've never thought of... It's crazy. I, I, I know that burning and combustion has been referred to as oxidation, but like thinking about the hydrogen as taking the oxygen and also the carbon as taking the oxygen. Oh my God. Crazy stuff. Okay. Oxidation is when you add an oxygen to the chemicals that you have. That's mm-hmm. the definition of oxidation. 
And, you know, if you have a candle and put a cup around it, you consume all the oxygen. When the oxygen runs out, the flame will stop. Mm-hmm. It's because there's no more oxygen to oxidize anything. It's just a whole principle. You ox- it, a fire oxidizes all the elements that are involved. If you have nitrogen, it's really bad because then you have very toxic fumes. And, you know, there's a, there was a time back then where there was nitrogen and then that's that was really unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of my flame spray paralysis, you also have metal elements like titania, like silica, like tin, uh, whatever you want to make, mm-hmm. zinc. And then those chemical essentially have the metal elements, the titania, carbon, and hydrogen, and oxygen. So this is what the chemical has. And then I mix that with a flammable solvent. So like alcohol is flammable, right? And then I, I have a syringe and a pump, and I spray it literally through an open flame. Okay, you spray the mixture with the alcohol, with the metal that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Into Anything a flame. In Just right through a flame, yeah, okay. Yes, that's it. So I want your job, um, man. <laughs> it's super fun. What a joke. Um, what a crazy joke. How'd you, how'd you pull this off? Nobody knows. Who are you in cahoots with? <laughs> nobody knows. That's what I'd like um, to know. Yeah. So when everything gets combusted, everything gets oxidized. So the carbon becomes CO2, hydrogen becomes water vapor. The titania elements becomes titanium dioxide. And so you have those very small particulates at the beginning, and then they collide inside the flame, right? And so when those particulates collide, they stick to each other. And so you have a particle that grows over time. Mm-hmm. You start with a nano size, micro size. You can control how big the particle is by controlling Whoa. how much time they have inside the flame. How do you do that if you're just spraying it through? Is, is there like a certain pressure that you can give to that like stream of water or? Certain flow rate. So you start, well, pressure controls flow rate. Yeah. And so you can, so you can say, I'm going to spray five milliliters every minute. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, so this is flame spray pyrolysis, quite the name. We've already touched on stereolithography. You are not short on the big jargony <laughs> words here. Okay. Jeez, I can't perfect. help it though. Um, it's all very fun though. Sometimes you got to get your feet wet linguistically if you want to get the exciting stuff going as well. Once we're, once we're on the topic of crazy named methodologies that you're using in your lab, what else are we missing out on? Let's run through all the big fun words. I think that's it. Uh, plus graphene. Yeah. Okay. Quantum dots. Could be. Quantum dots. Okay. What are quantum dots? Let's just build a dictionary for ourselves at this point. <laughs> I just want to know everything. And people can so, re-listen to this if they want. At this point, it's, it isn't the most organized discussion I've had, but that's part of the fun. Okay. No. So quantum dots, I think, is more related to what we've been talking about. So as I said, the goal is to make, to replace those chemicals in the 3D printing material with the nanoparticles to be able to increase the energy level that's required to start the 3D printing process. Now, quantum dots are a special kind of nanoparticles, and the energy that they respond to depends on their size. So if I make a smaller nanoparticle, I have a bigger energy that's required to excite them. See, that's so counterintuitive for me. Like, if I want to throw a golf ball into the air, that Mm -hmm. requires less energy than throwing a bowling ball into the air. Mm -hmm. But this is the opposite. Yeah, it's it, it's just physics that I was supposed to understand when I took a quantum physics class. I can't say right. that this I. Is, this is quantum. Yeah, <laughs> I understood. Um, nothing, nothing makes sense anymore. Yeah, <laughs> but but essentially, so I, if I make quantum dots and I I'm able to control the kind of energy that's required just by changing the size. And I said in that flame sphere paralysis, I can control size by changing those flow rates. 
right? And so I love that. Okay. So I can control the size using this process, and then I make the size small enough so that I have the requirements that I want in that chemical in the 3D printing resin. So that see, is so clever. That's this is so how clever. everything clicks. You have a temperature or energy problem, and then you kind of rewrite it as a size problem, which is more amenable to the methods you're using. Love it. That's that's an excellent science right there. That's <laughs> that's the nugget. That is the nano nugget right there. Wow, mm -hmm. fascinating. Okay, quantum dots. They sound kind of tasty. I have not tried. <laughs> you haven't made chocolate quantum dots yet? We haven't no, put that gap yet. They are pretty well. pretty though. I mean, not the nanobar not the quantum dots that I make because they're usually in the UV region, so they're all white. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you read like quantum dots papers, they're always very colorful. Because oh, interesting. that energy of light that we're talking about corresponds to different colors in the visible spectrum, in a visible region. So a blue light, a blue color has a higher energy than a red color. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you make quantum dots whose energy levels are within the visible region, you have particles that are big that have a red color. And then the same material, you haven't changed anything, you make them smaller, you have a green color. And then you make them smaller, you have a blue color. So I actually did this for fun, not for the CD printing stuff, sure. because I, I make quantum dots that are made of like titanium and, and, and it's always white. And I was like, well, this is boring. I look at the papers and I feel jealous. So I decided to make copper oxide quantum dots for absolutely no reason whatsoever other than I am jealous. Okay. Um, Jealousy drives us to do crazy things sometimes. Right. Like I, I don't have any application for it. I mean, I'm sure, sure. there are some if I look and read, uh, but mm -hmm. I don't. So copper oxide in a normal situation, they're like dark red. And I said, well, okay, this is like one end of the visual spectrum. I can make them smaller with my process and then see if the color changes, right? And so sure enough, I in the, there's a picture in that article that you referred to in the beginning where you see different vials that have particles mm -hmm. with different colors. And they're all made of copper oxide. They're all the same material. I love that. Okay. The one with the red is, is big particles. The one in blue is small particles. The one in the middle are green particles, but they're medium sized. See, you know, we're getting to this point now in our discussion where I've, I've started to get a, a really much clearer sense of the interface between chemistry and physics in your mm -hmm. work. Because this, like, I've, I have a bit of background in, in physics. Uh, I've learned a bit of chemistry as well, but the fact that you just brought them together to talk about like working in a lab to produce particles of a certain size, knowing that they are then going to react in a specific way as to look a particular color. I mean, that's, that's awesome. I absolutely love that. Yeah, no, it's, it's been, it's been really challenging to get to learn about different things, but it's, it's an adventure. And I think this is, again, I go back to that child metaphor or it's not a metaphor. It's, this is what children go through. Like, you know, I, I, my, my brother just had a, had a baby a couple months ago. Um, Very nice. and, and I'm, thank you. And, and I'm watching him ex experience and explore like different experiences every day, new experiences for him. Right. Like he has never, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him eat his first piece of fruit, for example. Right. I mean, you're not looking we... forward to your brother throwing his child through a giant column of flames to see how small he gets when he comes out the other end. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's morbid. I apologize. Uh, uh, we should keep him away from flames. That's a, this is yeah. a very good thing to say. Um, Let's stick to fruit. <laughs> but you know, he like he goes to a new place, or he's like now I, I he's at home and he looks around and he, what is this? What is this? I mean, he doesn't mm -hmm. say, but I always see his eyes like moving around, like, mm -hmm. figure out what where he's at. 
I mean, I'm entirely convinced babies in their first week have an existential crisis. Like, what, what's happening? But if they, see, if they were aware, they would probably be terrified. Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I've been saying. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, you yeah. don't know what's coming at you. But, but essentially, like, this is how I feel when you go into a new discipline, new field. Chemistry, physics, engineering. Like, my, my background is aerospace engineering. And well, then okay. I, you go into materials, and then you get to learn a little bit of organic chemistry. This is how these 3D printing resins work. And then now I have to make a, to learn about nanoparticles, which I've never heard about before at the time. And then, you know, you have to learn a little bit about physics and, and the chemistry. And so it's, it's exciting. It's an exciting adventure. It's the only, I think, difficulty is that, you know, when you have so many, when you're combining so many disciplines, there are not that many people who know how to speak the different languages. Mm-hmm. And as an engineer, you talk to a chemistry, it's like talking Chinese to people, even though we're both talking somehow English. Um, I hope the episode doesn't end with you telling me how lonely you are in the in the, in the vastness <laughs> of the interdisciplinary science world. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I think I'm 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 luckier than a lot of the people who are in my program because it, at the end of the day, it's material engineering, and I think the reason I went into the individualized program at the time is because Concordia didn't have a material engineering department. There is a lot of material engineering, and there are a lot of people working in it, and they have to combine disciplines. Mm-hmm. So it's not as lonely as it. I'm, I'm, I'm making it sound, but it, you know, it, this is a challenge with interdisciplinary education in, in general. For and sure. I think it's going to be something that we have to navigate as, as educators when you design Absolutely. university curriculums and, and so on. Listen, I have, I have one more question okay. uh, to, to ask you, which is a bit of a big one. Uh-oh. What do you think you were put on this earth to do? Or if you want to maybe dial it down a little bit, what do you think your biggest contribution to the world could be? On either a big or a small scale? Hmm. <laughs> uh, good question. I think it's more related to my, my work with, with Waste Not and, and, and the community. I feel like I my sense of purpose comes from community and, and, and that concept of credible empowerment. Because there's a lot of like talk about empowerment that essentially boils down to PR and, and, I, and I don't like that too much. It's really a question of, of credible empowerment and this is what I... I get a sense of purpose from, um, and and just working in a community helps me do that uh, through through ways not. But also like in science because you're working with so many different people, it's just that collaboration where you're working with with um, you know chemists, physicists, and and engineers. Um, and I think the empowerment piece of it comes when you work with young students. So I had a, a chance to supervise a few undergraduate students and, and, and help them walk through the different or learn the different processes. And I always thought I'm too impatient to teach, but I have been proven wrong when it comes to supervising uh, students because I always nice. get that sense of excitement when I see them learning. Yeah, listen, you're you're uniquely poised to help people in all different kinds of domains and that you're almost like the O-type blood where you just kind of fit in anywhere you go and you can help everybody else out as well as uh, in tandem with uh, at least in, in parallel with your own research. So I really appreciate that. And you've given me a very unique perspective and I hope the listeners feel that as well into the world that exists at the interface of various disciplines that are as big and unwieldy as chemistry and physics. So... I just want to thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. My, my pleasure. Um, yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for doing this work. I think science communication is super, super important and we need to do a much better job. And I think if you look at COVID, it's, this, is, this is a difficulty we've had with, with, uh, with the vaccines is people needing 
to trust science again, and and I and I think is what you're doing is really important to combat Thank that. I think you. I hope more people do that. As do I. I trust science and I trust you, Kira. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank, <laughs> thank you, you for, for giving us your time. Much appreciated. Have an awesome day. You too. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Abstract Coal and the Future of Science. Always a pleasure creating and discussing and having you join me. If you like this episode or if you've got problems with the episode, regardless anything in between, I want to hear from you. You can shoot me an email, abstractcast at gmail.com. You can touch base on Instagram at abstractcast. And if you've got an Apple ID, a review would be so appreciated. If you've got ideas for future episodes or are a graduate student yourself, you should definitely hit up my inbox. Now it's 2022, so we're not releasing weekly episodes anymore, but we still will be releasing content this year. So keep tuning back in and have a great rest of the day.